The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Working from home, four-day weeks, early retirement. Have we all lost the appetite for a nine-to-five office life? Has the way we work changed forever? And has the pandemic made us all think longer and harder about our priorities and how much time we're prepared to spend commuting or working on the shop floor? There are signs that we are seeing a big change, equal to the decline in mass employment assembly line factories and labour-intensive heavy industry that we saw a generation ago. In a high-tech world, are we more productive with fewer production days? Or with ever greater use of AI and robots, is there simply less work to do? What is the future of work? That's this week on The Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. Now, what is work? How are we going I don't, to... I've never done it. Even, I've, no, I, yes, no. that I is mean, true. Like you, you know, I've we sort are of probably th- the worst we, people to talk about this. <laughs> that's right, because we, we work in radio and podcasting. and so we, we say we don't. work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're actually, I mean, on that, we mm. are actually very lucky people from that mm. point of view, yeah, aren't we? Because, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you're in this industry because you love it. Yes. And, uh, you know, yes. and you, you don't get paid as much as you might do doing other jobs. Well, um, but, yes, but that is you, true. Certainly in my experience, uh, BBC <laughs> being a key part of that. Yeah. But I got to the point, I did get to the point where, I shouldn't really say this, basically, but I got to the point where I thought, I would do this even if they didn't pay me, in right. the sense that I enjoy Shh. doing it. Right. I know, I Thank know. God no one, you know, the upper echelons of the BBC are not exactly. listening to this. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Otherwise, uh, you should be getting that phone call saying, we've got a lot more work for you now. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but the point is, are we, uh, is the way we work? I mean, when my, my parents' generation, it was, you know, basically nine to five, five days a week, mm. get on the train, go to work, come home. That was the pattern, mainly men at that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, And all that has kind of... My dad was always home by half past five in the afternoon mm. I remember that because we'd always have dinner at quarter to six uh-huh. and um, and then yeah we'd sit and watch Nationwide at six o'clock or whatever you know it was, yeah. there was that, that regimen he'd always be home on time uh, and yeah I mean he I think he I remember him saying to me that his generation had it easy you know our generation is having to work harder to earn the same amount of money that they did so and yet you know 30 years ago or not, not more than 30 in the 30s sorry That's John a, Maynard yeah, came more, more than 30 years ago <laughs> John Maynard Keynes was there saying that you know we because of automation, uh, we would all be working a 15-hour week. How wrong could he be? He's been right on lots of things, but on that, no, obviously. No, he wasn't. But things are changing. Things are changing very rapidly. And we've seen it, I think, particularly since the pandemic, because mm. we all got used to, or most of us got used to, the idea of working from home as a thing. Yeah. And it worked for most of us to some extent. Commuting became less uh, of a thing that people do. But also, as we now know, a lot of people just left the workforce altogether. They they became uh, economically inactive, as the government likes to say, mm. uh, at much earlier ages, in their 50s and early 60s. So what is this telling us about the future? Is that where we are going? Are we all actually going to do less work, but then where or, does our income come uh, from? Yeah, exactly. Or is it all going to just drift back? Because I, mean, I think, you know, when you look at the numbers, some of, you know, I think there's been a bit of an exaggeration on just how big the shift was. I mean, no. certainly we, you know, we stopped going to work, but now we're starting to go back again, you know, and it's... Uh, well, and, some and, and the, some. And over 50s, there's yeah. still a lot of them working, you know. It's, that is uh, true. You know, it's... But uh, what about this four-day week? There was an experiment mm. of getting people to do no, four days a week, yeah. and at least according to the reports that I saw, the production was at least as good, if not better. Yeah, well, it puts us, I mean, if we work four days and we were actually 20% uh, more productive, you know, working those four days, you know, if we work five days, we would be on a par 
uh, with the productivity of friends because they are 20% more productive than us. So if we could work those four days plus the last day, we would be 20% more productive. Yeah, but then having worked that much, we yeah. probably wouldn't be so good because clearly working four exhausted. days works better for us. So yeah. it, it, it swings around. Anyway, we're going we're gonna to have a look at all this and get right. a sense of, of how it's all going to work. Well, we will, work. and we'll do that in just a second. First of all... Yes, this. The Y Curve is brought to you by Wigmore Associates, the boutique wealth management company in London that will manage your portfolio as well as providing advice on pensions and tax planning, including inheritance tax. They pride themselves on providing a high level of personal service, delivering real returns for a given level of risk within a tax-efficient portfolio. Their success at all of this is reflected in how long their clients have been with them. Some go back 30 years. So if you want to be the next long-term client of Wigmore Associates, look them up on the web. You can go to wigmoreassociates.co.uk or call them on 0207 224 You know, for a man who's never had anything to do with the commercial side of radio, you do that <laughs> remarkably well. Let, let's talk about work now. Indeed. Yeah. And mm. the person who's going to talk to us about this, someone who knows it rather well, is Claire Kelleher, Professor of Work and Organisation at Cranfield School of Management, Cranfield University. She's written books including New Ways of Organising Work and Flexible Working in Organisations. And Claire joins us now. So, so Claire, just before we started introducing you, we were, I mentioned that John Maynard Keynes, all those years ago in 1930, said that we'd all be working just 15 hours a week. What went wrong? Well, I think there are many factors um, in relation to that. First of all, um, I guess that uh, competitive pressures have resulted in us needing to work longer. Um, although, interestingly, productivity doesn't necessarily seem to be associated with longer working hours. But there are also social conventions as well as what we consider to be, you know, a working day, how people fill their time. So I think, you know, there's an accumulation of both economic and social factors. Yeah. And I mean, it, in a way, we want to obviously dissect what you've been saying there, particularly the idea, which we will come on to, about that working fewer hours, uh, according to a late recent experiment, seems to mean that, in fact, productivity can increase. But but that thing, that cultural conditioning, the idea in the past, we were talking about just before you came on, which was that, you know, the nine to five day, five days a week, commuting involved, go to work, come back from work, mostly men doing it, of course, in the older, in the olden days. Um, that is simply crumbling now, is it? Well, I think there are now certainly a number of challenges to it. Perhaps it might be going a bit too far to say it's crumbling. Um, I think those had already been developing pre-pandemic. Um, I think that, you know, we were seeing changes to the way in which people, the types of working patterns that they had, but also the way in which they wanted to engage with work. But I guess the pandemic, in many senses, exacerbated a lot of that because it turned upside down a number of the ways in which we work. I guess, you know, the most notable one being the widespread use of working from home when it was mandated by government for where it was possible. Um, and that challenged a lot of perceptions, I think. Um, and indeed, our research in relation to part-time work has showed that during the pandemic, particularly organisations that use the furlough scheme, the flexible furlough scheme, challenged their perceptions about what was possible, what was feasible with part-time working as well. But is that are we finding that we are going back on that a little bit? So when before the pandemic, of course, you know, you had a lot of managers who just didn't trust people to work from home. They thought, you know, working from home meant, you know, round of golf uh, was the literal translation, wasn't it? And and then obviously people did start to work from home and they saw that, the you know, you could be productive. I just wonder whether it's creeping back now just from the people I know. You know, there's more people getting on the train into London now and that's not 
by choice, their choice, it's by their boss's choice. I wonder whether this mistrust is creeping back in again now. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in quite a fluid situation at the moment in relation to remote working. Um, There are certainly businesses that... I don't think it's only about trust. It may be about trust in some circumstances, but I don't think it's only about trust. I think it's also businesses who perhaps have recognised that there are some things that we do do better when we're in a face-to-face context and others which actually are fine to be done where people aren't co-located. And so I think it's, you know, kind of learning from some of those experiences really to say, well, what works, what doesn't work? And for some some organisations, the response to that has been to bring people back to work or bring them back to work for more days than perhaps they might choose to be there. But there's also, you know, the reverse is happening too. There are organisations who've given up their premises and, you know, no longer have somewhere where everybody could be in the workplace at the same time. So hot desking and other forms where people, you know, attend work on an irregular basis. So I think we are very much in flux until organisations really sort out what works and what doesn't work then. Is, is that a sectoral thing, really, do you think? Because I've, I've certainly heard in, in certain businesses the idea that you need to have people in the office in order to share experience, so younger staff members learning from older, more experienced staff members, but also the younger members of staff actually wanting the social interaction that comes from that, and that, that all that is particularly important in service industries, um, and uh, particularly, for example, in the city, which is where I, I know that is widely said, whereas I guess certain other things could be, if they're mainly isolated activities anyway, perhaps just writing at a computer, that easily could be done from home. Yeah, I mean, I think there are different challenges for different sectors. Um, But equally, I think we really have to unpick work and the way in which work is coordinated and the communication that takes place. Um, We talk about teams very glibly in organisations and that a team means a lot of things. Sometimes people are genuinely interdependent and they have to collaborate in order to achieve what it is they're doing. Other times, teams just means a group of people who happen to do the same kind of thing, who are grouped together. So I think, you know, we need to get beyond the generalizations and actually look at how work happens and who needs to collaborate and who doesn't need to collaborate. And sometimes that might be fine to collaborate um, through using technological means, but sometimes being in the same room is important as well. So it is very, obviously, it is dependent on the type of work you do. So if if you're a nurse, you haven't really got much choice. You really don't want uh, patients turning up at your house and similarly you know if you if you work in a restaurant unless you've got a really big kitchen uh, you know you've got to go into work so uh, it is dependent on the job you do and that therefore means it's also dependent on you know there's an income related um, factor to all of this so there's no NS survey that showed 38 percent of those working uh, who are earning over 40,000 or more did hybrid working and then a further 23% on top of that work from home. So those higher income earners, uh, only 28% would travel to work. But those earning twenty to 30,000, only 12% work from home, only 24% did hybrid working, uh, and the rest had to go into work. So the predominantly, they were, they were going into work. But that would be because they probably were in those sorts of jobs where you had to, had to be there. So, and I guess that creates a bit of animosity, doesn't it? You know, that there's some people saying, well, it's all right for those people who earn some money. They've, you know, they've had a cushy number to start with. And now they've got, yeah. you know, it's, it's a, a blue collar, white collar divide, well, I suppose, is, is, is what we yeah. would think of. Well, in, in some senses, yes. I think that where people's jobs genuinely can't be, 
I think people aren't generally resentful of others who can work. Having said that, there are, of course, some of the cost issues associated with it. Um, I think for in, in the post-pandemic world, or should I say post-lockdown world, um, I think what is important is to make workplaces where people both have to attend, but also we might want to persuade people to attend more, to make workplaces attractive places to go to. Um, so that, you know, providing good facilities for employees who are there. Um, and so in some sense, it's mitigating the costs associated with um, uh, the, the travel to work. But of course, in the cost of living crisis with the fuel um, increase in fuel costs, it also means that traveling to work may be cheaper from employees not having to heat their homes yeah. all day. Every day. Yes, I mean, but I think it was, I mean, that was the point I was probably trying to make, not bad, but perhaps badly, that, you know, there's a cost adjustment that has to happen here, doesn't there? In that, you know, the, the people who are well off are the ones who are actually spending less, by and large. The people who uh, are on lower incomes, it's, it's really not making any difference to them. And maybe, you know, that, that is an opportunity for some sort of tax adjustment to allow for this change in behaviour. Indeed, I think those kind of, you know, policy issues. I mean, there was a bit of debate some while ago about, you know, should people be paid less who work remotely for most of the time? Um, that, I think, is a difficult one, particularly in what remains in many sectors quite a difficult labour market. Um, if one does that, then employers may well struggle, struggle to recruit. In the longer term, there may be other issues to take into account. What about the management issue? Because one of part of your brief, uh, as I know, is a professor of management, and one imagines managers would find it harder to manage people who they don't have with them most of the time. I mean, not necessarily being, uh, you know, looked at for not doing work, but just even getting the direction that they need in that work. Yeah, it certainly requires a different approach to management, I think. And, you know, that kind of there's a, a management development need there if managers are going to successfully manage people who aren't physically present in the work environment. Um, it, you know, challenges that kind of control approach, which might might be about seeing people having direct conversations. Um, managers need to look at ways of supporting their staff in different ways, communicating in different ways. And I think in many ways it um, requires more intensive communication because you're not picking up the non-verbals, you're not having the corridor conversations that might be supporting um, formal meetings. You need to have those opportunities for you know, kind of unstructured conversation in senses so what i thought might have happened but it hasn't it's in fact the opposite it happened is that when people started working from home managers might have started to say well you know what you're doing this and just so long as you get the job done i don't care how much time you spend on it so in effect by you just you know doing the, being charged to do this bit of work there's no point in you working for this company. I might as well outsource you to do that. And you set up your own company working from home. Rather, you know, then I don't have to worry about managing you. I just have to worry about the deliverables. And I would have thought, you know, if we were moving in that direction, we'd see more and more of that happening. But actually, we're seeing the opposite, aren't we? We had a lot of people who were off payrolls working for themselves. But since the pandemic, actually, the number of employees on payrolls, uh, for example, in, in January 2019, it was 28.7 million. Now it's over 30 million, which is the highest it's ever been. Well, well maybe that's in part because they realised, and perhaps during the pandemic, that the, the safety nets obviously are not there in the same way. You can't be furloughed yeah. for a company you don't work for. Yeah. I'm sure that's it. Yeah, I think very much so. I think that um, one of the things organisations did realise was the things that they lost 
were through having employees all being remote, everybody being all remote all of the time. I think there was a realisation of, you know, both the gains, but also some of the uh, things that were lost and be able to have people in a more engaged relationship rather than in a more distant relationship with the, the organisation they do work for, they carry out work for. Um, I think there's been a recognition of the importance of What about then this issue which we mentioned, which is to do with productivity and this experiment, which I, I'm sure you've been across, which is uh, of having a four-day week uh, for a certain group of companies and how far that did or did not improve their productivity and you know one would assume one day less one day less productivity that that much less and this but, is quite a big study wasn't it yeah. 20, 29 companies almost, yeah. almost three thousand people involved in this so it was a big study what do you make of it claire yeah i mean i think what we need to be really careful about is when we talk about the four day working week is what we actually mean by it um because the implementation has varied across different organizations so is it representing effectively a compressed working week where people do their same hours, but they do them in four four days rather than five? Is it representing a situation where people can choose which four days? Or is it that, you know, the business closes down for the fifth day and as a result, there's no choice associated with that? Um, But equally, is it about being more productive in the time that work is done? Um, What we also have to think about is what being productive means. Uh, We can put measurables in place to say, what are people actually achieving? In the longer term, might there be a cost there in terms of the things that people don't do that they might have done? You know, the interactions, the sparking ideas off each other. If people are working more intently during those four days, then there may be some things that will be lost. Having said that, though, on the other um, on the other side, I think there are perhaps fewer life distractions if people are working on only four days rather than five. They've got an additional day to deal with personal matters. But also there is some work done um, by colleagues in the Netherlands that's looked at this idea of recovery from work and how we can be more productive if we have greater periods and more effective periods of recovery from work. So, you know, being less tired, being less stressed because we've had greater periods of time away from work. It does come from the University of Bleeding Obvious, doesn't it? That, you know, <laughs> if, you've, if you've got, I mean, you know, not downplaying your role, of course, at, at Cranfield, but I mean, it, you know, it, you, if you don't get a chance to recover, you're, you're not going to perform. But let's cut to the chase. In, the, in, in your studies, how many people in work are actually just trying to look busy? pootling about but actually not really achieving anything at all it seems like there's a lot of people in so it would be quite easy to improve productivity if there was a way of managing to eke out those people who for whatever reason maybe the job they've got actually really doesn't exist or they're demotivated uh, or they're just there trying to make their boss look good but actually not contributing anything to the to, to the you know to the benefit of the organization that must be a huge swathe of the workforce isn't it well, I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say it's a huge swathe. There certainly um, are people, I'm sure, in every organisation who aren't performing at the level that they might be able to uh, perform. Um, but there are lots of things that explain those 
performance in organisations. Some of it's motivation, some of it's the kind of inability to do the jobs because they don't have the right resources in order to do so. Um, some of it may be because, you know, people would rather not be there, they'd rather be doing something else. So I think, you know, it's quite hard to generalise, um, but this was this is a long-term issue. I don't think it's necessarily something that has been exacerbated in the post-lockdown world. No, it might, it might have got better, actually, might not it? Well, I mean, people might have realised that these people did nothing, I suppose. Yeah, or right. more to the point as well. I mean, you know, some of these people who've been losing jobs perhaps have been thinking, well, I am doing nothing. I, you know, I should move on and do something else with my life. And is it is it clearly a function perhaps of big organisations that that can happen, that, that, that you need someone is put in a particular position with a particular title, and as long as things stay quiet, the managers are happy because it doesn't rock the boat, they just carry on doing basically nothing for a long time. Whereas if you're in a small company, everybody has to pull their weight just because it's noticeable if you don't. So, Claire, I don't know if you've read David Graeber's book. You wrote a book in 2018 called Bullshit Jobs. Are you aware of that book? Uh, I'm not familiar with it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he postulates, and he's a he's an anthropologist basically, as, and uh, he postulates that you know a lot of people are in meaningless jobs, uh, and being, it, because it's meaningless, it destroys their work work ethic and their self wealth worth, uh, worth I should say, uh, and yeah, the, and wealth probably as well ultimately. Uh, but he says there's five types of participants. There's the flunkies, though those who are there just to make their bosses look good, but actually don't do anything. The goons who try and deceive and make their employees look good. And basically, I think he was talking about PR people there, mm. which, I, you know, I mean, ma- married We've to, all met a few of those. Well, you are married to one, so I can't say too much about that. Uh, the duct tapers who, who find temporary fixes to things that actually need a permanent fix. Uh, he's doing well in, you know, describing yeah. a lot of the organizations I've worked for. The box tickers who try and look useful, uh, but actually um, they're not doing anything at all. He cites uh, in-house magazine editors uh, for, for that. So, you know, journalists are coming under attack and then the taskmasters the middle management who create jobs that don't need to be done uh, and that they all survive because of management feudalism uh, it's a fascinating book but I mean it doesn't paint a very particular you know healthy portrait of, uh, of of working life but when you read it you do think I know all of these people I've worked in these organizations and you feel like if there was just better management, just how much more productive could companies be without all of these flaws? Uh, and, you know, I've worked for organizations where, well, one telecommunications organization where they ripped out a whole tier of management and everything improved immediately after they did that because those people were largely people who said no a great deal that built up empires so that they looked good for people you know by having more people working for them when they went the company just functioned so much better yeah i mean i think you put your finger on it with it being a failure of management um when you have mm. you know a wide variety of reasons why people are suboptimal in terms of their performance in the workplace um and i think it's you know challenging management processes but also thinking about how managers are managed themselves. When managers are perhaps very targeted, they're managed in a very target-driven kind of way, um, maintaining control in such a way that allows them to do to reach those targets because they've done it before um, doesn't really encourage innovation and experimenting with new kinds of practices. And so I think that, you know, that means don't rock the boat in many senses. So I think yeah. that, 
is something we also need to think about, not necessarily just blaming managers, but also thinking about how managers are managed themselves. We've talked a lot about the ways in which things have developed, but what I wanted to ask you, Claire, was where you see things going next. I mean, we, we talked about the, the fact that people in the past, uh, John Maynard Keynes, may have got it wrong in terms of the shape of future work. But the fact is we have reached a point where AI, for example, they certainly write student essays, some of these things, allegedly, but uh, which you may experience, I don't know. But, but a lot of work can be done by automation, by AI. Are we all, in effect, do you think, looking 20, 30 years down the line, going to be needing to work less? Well, I think there are a number of factors that's going to influence that. Um, first of all, I think there are issues around investment. Um, where cheap labour is available, there is perhaps a disincentive for organisations to invest in technology in that kind of a way. You know, we've seen the robotic processes that could do cleaning activities in offices, for example, being available for a very long period of time. Um, but in the main, they haven't taken over the role of the cleaners who come when the people who work there have vacated the offices and still carry out that on a manual basis. Um, but of course, there are opportunities to replace certain tasks, which may mean it may be a route to make jobs more interesting in some cases by actually taking away the parts that perhaps have less discretion on the part of employees, less judgment, less degree of specialism, um, and allow them to focus on the kind of uh, work which may be more important to them, maybe providing greater challenge, and as a result, be more satisfying to um, the individuals who are involved. And of course, it's worth saying that, you know, when technology is used, it in itself creates jobs, um, both developers, people who maintain, et cetera, et cetera, um, the technology that takes over certain parts of work. So is the future then that we become more generalist rather than specialist? I feel like we were talking about that decades ago, and I'm not quite sure we got there. But I mean, I, I remember that conversation. I mean, you know, if you have a, a broad range of experience and you can be more of a generalist, then you're going to do better in the in the work of world of work. But, you know, in reality, very often those people who specialised actually seem to be the ones who are getting ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure it's necessarily generalist versus specialist, but about perhaps transferable skills, things that can move from one environment to another. Um, and some of the kind of softer skills in organisation, I guess, are those that are difficult, are more difficult. I mean, it comes back to the point we were talking about a moment ago in terms of management. Um, it's not just about systems and processes that mean there are people who aren't necessarily producing at appropriate levels. But, you know, it's often about the relationships um, in order to get those people on board, to get those people to um, want to do the work and to feel that they're part of something that they contribute to in a more general way. So I think it's perhaps a priority on different types of skills and different types of activities rather than necessarily just general versus um, specialist per se. Well, with, with those skills which we're talking about, we're essentially talking about education to get to that point. And a, and a generation ago, or perhaps two generations ago now, began to see the end of the kind of assembly line, non-skilled manual labour on a grand scale that had been a, a fundamental uh, of British life and moved far more into uh, other areas. And we're now seeing offices, of course, where certain amounts of skill, certainly in terms of IT, for example, are required and generally a higher level of education 
for the workforce. Do you see that progressing further? Are we going to need far more people who can can cope with these things? And is that going to be a huge challenge in itself? I think that the role of education is clearly very important in terms of both specific uh, activities at work, but I think also it in some ways the developmental aspect of education also helps prepare people for being employed rather than necessarily doing particular tasks. Uh, so there's both a sort of, you know, something which is specific about the nature of work that people do. But of course, in the UK, um, you know, the service sector is very dominant in terms of our employment, more so than perhaps in some of um, at least our European competitors. And as a result, that you know, it is those softer skills which are becoming more important for a greater proportion of the workforce, rather than those kind of traditional manual skills that perhaps people learn through um, the uh, old style apprenticeship, as opposed to the apprenticeships that have um, have grown in more recent years. So soft skills is an interesting one, isn't it? Because, I mean, the, the, the work is a complex environment. And, uh, and you know, you go, for a, you go for a job interview. It's quite a long time since I've been for one. But, I mean, increasingly later on in my career, it was more about the values of the organization than your ability to actually do the job. And did you fit in with the values? Did and you that, tick certain boxes? No, I tick, tick no boxes, which is the point where I started to realize I'd have to work for myself from that point onwards. But, I mean, it was... Um, but it was and it was the soft skills for that but in and in, in fact if you if you were too opinionated or you were had a particular way of working which was a bit more direct you almost certainly became unemployable and yet you know in my mind you actually need that mix you certainly you need people to to you know wallpaper over the cracks and make sure everyone's happy but you also need you know a bit of gum, gumption and a bit of um to try and get stuff done and i feel like uh, you know maybe companies are losing a bit of that that edge well managers don't like to have I'm troublesome like, employees do well, they maybe they're I mean, exactly you know I'm talking, I'm talking about a survey of one person but um you know but i feel like a, you know and, and then you've got the whole thing as well about uh, you get beyond a certain age and you become unemployable mm. because everybody wants younger people and yet all that uh you know that experience that goes mm. with your age is i mean is that useless or you know i would have thought it would be quite important stuff that's sitting in your brain that companies could actually make use of but it gets discarded it's, no, a, a, rant, uh, it's a personal <laughs> rant coming out. I apologise, Claire. Um, I think what he's saying... I mean, what about the personal... The, the, the soft skills we're talking about can be taught up to a point. But I suppose the point is you need people who are not just there to, to, to move one thing from to, to another place or to, to move a keyboard, put, put, put their fingers on a keyboard. You need something more than that. And that perhaps is what's developing as a need in the workforce. Yeah, but my point was that we need... A, companies also talk about diversity, but they need a diversity not just mm. culturally but they need a diversity of attitude as well because that's the way society functions and, and companies often don't work that way yeah i mean i think what's um important is to distinguish between jobs that perhaps require a higher level of um self-described self-definition if you like those that where people perhaps in professional jobs are deciding how things should be done and indeed what should be done in many circumstances now under those circumstances i think you know people need to be perhaps a little bit more tenacious to um defend their viewpoint on what should be done or how things should be done there will be other kinds of jobs where there's a low level of self-definition in them um and you know the people who are more opinionated 
opinionated perhaps might be might find that that's problematic in those circumstances because actually there is little discretion in the way in which the job is done. So I think that you know the the different levels and different types of jobs that becomes important in different ways to think about what is you know how much control how much are we trusting people to make judgments about what is appropriate to do and how to do it versus expecting people to carry out instructions and conform to a particular uh, prescribed way of doing things right but do you think companies are getting that that right I mean, and you know there's also that age issue as well so let's come back to that one but do you think companies are getting that that mix right or have they gone too far down the road of saying well we've we've defined corporate values which is you know a few senior members of the team have got together for for uh, half a, for a workshop for half a day and we've come up with a, a, a group of words that now all of a sudden everyone has to adhere to uh, if you came back and asked us in a couple of weeks, we could, would have come up with a couple of, you know, a few different words, which everyone would have to adhere to. And I'm being very cynical here, but, you know, I do worry about corporate values being too pervasive and actually distorting the direction that companies take. Yeah, I mean, I think values, you know, well-defined values are generally very broad. Um, you know, there's something that is that an organisation aspires to. Um, they also um, can be enacted in different ways. Having said that, I think the biggest problem with uh, values is often that they're not really enacted in organisations. You know, there's something that organisations shout about and saying, these are our values, these are the things that guide the way in which they work. But actually, there are lots of behaviours and actions which are not in line with those values. And that's kind of mixed messages both to employees inside organisations, but also to customers and other businesses and individuals that act that enact within the organisation. Um, if they're not being displayed if they're not being played out in what is done well one of those values that certainly in some of the companies i've worked for has all been about no we we, we employ people from all uh, parts of of the community and, and particularly a sense that they don't always just go for the youngest and cheapest employees and picking up a point that phil made there what about the age profile of workers one of the big government things at the moment is trying to get the over 50s back into work if they've become economically inactive is that a trend that we're likely to see going forward that many people of that age group continue to stay outside the, the workforce or, or is that just a temporary thing well i think there are different groups within that i mean i think there's currently about three and a half million of the 50 to 64 age group who are defined as economically inactive. And within that, I think there are several kind of subgroups of reasons. Of course, there are those that have long-term health conditions um, who may not at least be able to work full-time or work in a traditional way. There might be some more flexible working options which would be available to them. Um, perhaps those that have received a lot of attention in the press in recent times are those people who have kind of voluntarily left the labour market market um, since the pandemic. And I think that's about 10% of the total. I think it's about 350,000 of them who have voluntarily left. Now, um, I think there's a number of things going on there. Uh, first of all, we've already seen an increase um, in that 
portion of that age group who are employed, so a return to work, um, perhaps particularly those that did their planning, their retirement planning on the basis of costs, how they looked um, 12 months ago, 18 months ago, without taking into account the cost of living crisis that we're suffering. And so many have you know, looked again at their finances and felt that they need to return to work or at least some work to supplement their income. Um, but thinking about those that have voluntarily decided not to continue working, there are, of course, some kind of um, structural issues around the taxation system. We've heard a lot about the doctors, for example, which, although relatively small group, um, who've got into a situation where their taxation is um, punitive in relation to their pensions. They're a small group, but they're an important group within the labour market. Um, but if we think about the people who just voluntarily left, probably those people don't want to go back to their old jobs. Um, you know, they made a decision to leave. And as a result, we need to think about what's available, how they can work, but also what work they might do. And I think particularly flexible working options will offer opportunities to attract those people back into the labour market um, to work, perhaps working remotely, perhaps to work part time, to allow them to do some of the other things in life that they might want to have done. Um, so I think that we have both a kind of an immediate um, issue in those sectors that are experiencing severe labour shortage to bring those people back. And I guess the Chancellor talking about the uh, relationship with economic growth in terms of the numbers who are um, inactive. Um, but perhaps that recognition also now on the part of employers of the value that experienced and workers and perhaps those who are um, bringing a different perspective to the work environment, what value they can add that is lost if you have a predominantly younger workforce available to them. So, you know, in line with the general principle of diversity, I think we would see older workers adding an important contribution that would be lost if your workforce was uh, predominantly Younger work. Well, I wonder. I mean, they've. They, I mean, obviously, they've got the ability to, to to leave. They obviously, you know, are not strapped for cash, so they're, they're not there because they have to be. I wonder how many of them actually read uh, David Graeber's bullshit jobs book because you know perhaps they're there thinking, well, this job has no meaning, and that's. I mean, so you know, fair point on this. I think is that we all want to have jobs that have meanings, and that was that again is why I was bringing up the corporate values. I've just pulled up a website. This is one company's corporate values. We trust each other to achieve more together. We put people first to go further for our customers. We embrace our differences to value everyone. We're bold. We take action. We're not saying so, which the company is. No, which, well, it could be any company. It's very empty. And that's, and that, and I feel like, you know, there's, how do we, how do people have jobs in the future? I mean, it would be nice if we had to work less, but I don't think people would care too much about how much they worked if they had a job with meaning. And I'm just wondering whether the bulk of the workforce feels like they're in jobs with meanings or is there a way that that future of work, I don't know how we get there. Maybe it is because more of the mundane tasks are done through automation, but people have, or whether it's a, 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 a problem of management that people perhaps don't have that meaning. How do we have a future where, irrespective of how long you work, it doesn't matter because you love your job because it gives you meaning and it becomes a bit of who you are. Yeah, I think it's about job design uh, here of trying to think about how jobs can be 
constructed in a way that are um, things that are challenging, things that are engaging for individuals, things that deliver satisfaction, and perhaps to use technology to a greater degree, cover those things that are a bit mundane. But I think we do need to be careful um, not to um, assume that everybody will want to work all of the time if they do have jobs that are engaging. Um, non-work commitments, the things people have responsibilities for or find out that are important for them to do in their non-work lives are always going to be some form of a constraint on people's participation in the labour market. And, you know, clearly caring commitments, whether that's for children or whether that's elder care or um, caring for um, a, a family member who is sick, for example, uh, but also perhaps things that are outside of work context that are important for people, might be cultural things, might be religion, participation in religious activities, it might be hobbies, it might be pursuing further education, all kinds of things that make up, if you like, the complexity of people's non-work lives. So whilst those people still will look for meaning in their work. Yeah, but they want to work less, uh, for sure. Yeah, to try and get the balance. It is work-life balance, doesn't it? Okay, so final final question then. What is, and uh, you don't have to be too accurate on this because we can always, because you can point back to John Maynard Keynes and say, well, he got that wrong uh, with his 15 hours a, a, a week. But what do you think is going to be, you know, if we, in the next decade, what it, what is going to change? Well, how, will it, how will it look going into work? In 10 years' time, will it look any different than it does now for the average person in their employment? I think we, as I hope, I'm optimistic that we will have got better at understanding where work needs to be done, what amount we need to do. I mean, one of the things that um, the recent research we've been doing on part-time working really has um, spelt out to me is really the notion between dividing work between full-time and part-time is actually not helpful at all because part-time covers such a big categorization between, you know, people who work 90% of full-time and people who only work 20%. um, So that kind of divide, I think it's, and equally, work doesn't occur in convenient units of 35 hours or 37 or 40 hours of a working week. So thinking about what's required to do jobs and how people want to engage with those jobs and looking for ways of matching what an organisation needs and an individual needs to a greater degree, I think is what I would hope we will be better at. So more flexibility and output focused. Is that yeah, certainly more flexibility, um, but flexibility from an organisational side as well, uh, not just from the employee side and trying to bring together those interests in order to deliver a meaningful experience for employees, but also to have good levels of performance from those people who are being employed. Claire, thank you very much for being with us. That is the future of work. It'll be very interesting to see if it, uh, if your predictions come true. I think we would wish that they would. But thanks very much for being with us. Well, you know, I, I actually found that whole thing quite cathartic. Though, Good. No, I, because, yeah. I, was, I, I, I was only, going through all the lows of my career. I apologise to listeners and say, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry you had to hear that. But, but was I wrong? I mean, uh, you know, of course we, you went wrong. How many of us have worked in it organizations? It was your truth, Phil. That's the important point. <laughs> anyway, we're coming on to some other truth. We've all been there. We're coming on to some other truth, which is that the fact that we are, in Britain, a more divided society than we have been, well, some say, since the war. Mm. Uh, and as we look at the budget, uh, the UK's budget, does that in any way address that? Or are we still uh, two nations, fundamentally, those who have 
and those who generally do not have and, and are the ones who have getting more and the ones who don't getting less. So that's that's the impression. And it's one all has. been a little bit confused, of course, by furlough and, you know, yep. that whole period where actually things were going the other way for a little mm. while yep. and that people on lower income actually were, were getting boosted a little bit more because they had a bit more government money than they yep. did before. So then that raises the question, if we could do it then, why, why can't we do it now? Exactly, exactly. And all sorts of issues to do with the extent to which actually improving people's prospects through education, health and everything else leads to a more general wealth increase in the country itself. Or do you cut taxes and uh, encourage people to, uh, the those who have to have more on the basis that they will invest it? I mean, these arguments go around and around. But the, the evidence about how far people are different in terms of their income, health, everything else. And all the tax loopholes that exist uh, yeah. as well, you know, for if you're if you're wealthy or the ability <laughs> for you to put money aside tax free to yep. invest that isn't obviously open to people on low incomes, or even the housing ladder. You know, the but, people who've made yeah. money out of the housing market and those people who just can't get onto but that. Do, ladder. Do, does all that money going to the rich, in effect, trickle down? Awful phrase to the people who need it. Well, I mean, we can say you're listening next week with the, with <laughs> anyway, the word no. But, but we will talk about the divide and what evidence there is for the extent of that divide. Uh, we've talked to a leading historian actually who's talked about how it's all changed over the years. And that's all on next, next week. week's Y Curve brought to you by Wigmore Associates. Right, nicely done. See you next week. The Y Curve.